Are you wanting more Totally Mackinac Island podcast? Well, here's how you can get it. Be sure to follow Totally Mackinac Island podcast on Instagram. Not only do I share everything that I talk about on the podcast, but then throughout the rest of the week, I share other invaluable information that is actually going on on the island at that very moment. How that is done, up in my Instagram stories. I also like to share a bunch of pictures and videos that I have taken throughout my visit on the island. Another great way for more information about the podcast is always go to the blog. There I have all the links available for everything I have discussed. That is www.totallymackinaw.com. If you go on there, you will find everything I have ever discussed on the podcast, how you need to link up to it, and what other information you can have. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys have learned so much. I love sharing all that I can with you. It has actually even helped me learn more about the island. And I always appreciate those reaching out to give me more information to share with everyone else. Now back to the show. Located on the crystal blue waters of Lake Huron lies Mackinac Island. She is tucked in between Michigan's upper and lower peninsulas. Indulge me as I share all the ins and outs of the place that stole my heart. This is totally Mackinac Island. Hello and welcome to Totally Mackinac Island. I am your host, Heather, and I hope everyone is getting into the Christmas spirit, got their decorations up got some shopping done. I know that our porch has been very full this week. In fact, I am beyond excited that my package from Riba's arrived with the Best of Mackinac Island fudge sampler. Actually, not fudge. I should just say sampler because it's got peanut brittle, caramel corn, saltwater taffy, and two pieces of fudge in there. And I got maple pecan and chocolate pecan. Maple pecan has become... <laughs> Maple in general has just become one of my favorite flavors as I've gotten older. Like I love the maple glazed um, Long John donuts. So I'm all about that. And um, I found that ironic because that I got that. It was a gloomy day and it arrived. And just to let you know, I'm doing this on Friday. And tonight is the Christmas tree lighting, which you can watch live on the Mackinac, Mackinac Island Tourism Bureau Facebook page. And I can't wait to be sitting there eating this and feel like I'm kind of there. So um, anyway, wanted to get into what this episode is about. And I shared a little bit about it on some social media. I'm gonna be speaking with author Rod Sadler and we were able to connect a few months ago and finally able to connect and get him on here. I'm not gonna share much more because we're gonna get into that in the interview. But before we begin, I just wanna say, this is no reflection on Mackinac Island. This is nothing negative to say about them. That is never my goal, all of you know that. Um, it just was an unfortunate situation that happened there in 1960. Okay, this is not recent, this is nothing that you need to be alarmed about. Um, Part of the reason I'm doing this too, and why Rod is doing this is, he is a former police officer, but I also, in listening to different true crime podcasts and watching different things throughout years, at the end of the day, you just want to find out who did this and get 
justice and closure for not only the family, but for the victim. And my hope is that with maybe doing this, with Rod's book, with him doing some other podcasts, that we can get the information out there and hopefully get some answers and finalize this chapter for this family and, and close that. So it just so happened that it sadly occurred on this beautiful enchanted island. And I hate that. I hate that that happened. Um, as, as does Rod, as he, you know, says. So um, I just wanted to share that before we got started. And in no way is it negatively spoken about at all. Okay, I'm going to start chatting. And without further ado, get into the interview. All right, everyone. Today, we are very, very lucky to be joined with author Rod Sadler. And he reached out to me a couple months ago on um, Instagram. And I have been forever grateful for that moment. Um, so welcome, Rod, to the show. Thank you for coming on. No, thank you. I'm, I'm excited. Yes. This should be a good time. I think so, too. All right. So one thing I like to ask, though, ask those who come on is, what is your Mackinac origin story? Uh, you know, growing up in Michigan, um, I had never, ever been to Mackinac Island. Uh, until uh, my my oldest son was probably three years old and uh, my wife at the time and, and my son and some friends of ours went up there it was literally my first time and so that would have been the mid 90s and we just spent an afternoon there it, it really was um it's a very enchanting place as you know mm -hmm. um i knew that that uh somewhere in time had been filmed up there i had a, actually had a couple friends who were security guards here in the lansing michigan area back right out of high school uh, we all graduated together and they were security guards and the security company they worked for uh sent them up that up to the island actually to uh work security on the set uh, during the filming of somewhere in time. Oh and my gosh. So, so I always thought that was kind of cool. And, and so when we went up there in the, the mid nineties, uh, we just spent an afternoon. And then a couple years ago, uh, my wife and I went up with some other friends and we did a paranormal investigation at the mission point resort. And we did a paranormal investigation with some friends of ours. And it was through Amy Bruni and Adam Berry's, um, company called strange escapes mm -hmm. and uh they travel all over the country and and you can be a part of a of a ghost hunt if you will and one of the evenings we decided to go down to uh the uh haunts of Mackinac ghost tour and that was the very first time that i heard about uh the francis lacy homicide mm -hmm. yep same for me and yeah and that was my origin if you will uh yeah. with Mackinac island it's very um captivating when you hear that at that moment because it just kind of hits you especially if you've been on if you're on the island at that moment and you know how to get there and you being who you are which we'll get to that in a moment it's um it, i'm sure got your mind just reeling oh absolutely mm -hmm. absolutely it did yeah yeah uh, yeah the whole weekend was was quite an experience Oh, good. I'm glad that you enjoyed that and got to experience that. I don't know if they're still, I've seen that they were doing paranormal stuff, but I don't know if they still ha offer that. Um, yeah, I don't know either. Uh, I think they were going 
I think Strange Escapes was going to go back to Mackinac in okay. October of this year. So they may have been up there again. Okay. Yeah. Because I saw it the one time a few years ago and I just thought, gosh, that would be really neat. But you know what? It probably is. I just haven't looked for it. I'll, I'll, I'll say sure. that. I hate to say that it's not there and it's been there and then I misquoted. Um, so let's, let's share with the listener exactly who you are. Well, uh, I am a uh, veteran law enforcement officer. I worked for 30 years in law enforcement here in mid-Michigan. Uh, I started uh, with the campus police department at Lansing Community College and ended up with the uh, Eaton County Sheriff's Office, which is basically the west side of Lansing, Michigan, uh, the state capital. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's largely a rural community. And I spent uh, 25 years there um, my my specialties were traffic crash investigation, and I was also a police artist. Okay. Um, and so I would uh, do our composite drawings of suspects and bad guys and things like that. And uh, I got, after I retired, um, I decided to do a little genealogy project. My uh, great-great-grandfather, mm -hmm. uh, back in 1897, had served as the Ingham County Sheriff. Ingham County is where the, the state capital is located. Okay. And uh, I grew up in a small town in Ingham County called Williamston. Mm -hmm. And it's about a half hour east of Lansing. And uh, in 1897, there was a brutal, brutal murder there. Uh, a guy came home and discovered that his wife had beheaded his mother and put her plate or put her head on a plate for him for dinner uh, uh, and then set her headless corpse on fire. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, and my great great grandfather was the sheriff at the time and investigated the murder. And so that was my first book. My first book uh, was titled To Hell I Must Go. Uh -huh. And. Uh, I had so much fun doing that, digging into uh, family history and, and criminal history from 1897, that I decided to write a second book. My second book detailed uh, uh, double murder in Stockbridge, Michigan, which is in the southeast corner of Ingham County. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a double murder in 1955 committed by an escaped convict. Okay. And his... His case uh, actually lingered in the courts for about 30 years and was going to be heard by the United States Supreme Court. And the Michigan Attorney General's office was quite concerned that he was going to get out on a technicality. Wow. And so I put that book together. And mm -hmm. then uh, I knew uh, that back in the 70s, when I was in high school, there was a series of uh, murders uh, in and around the Michigan State University campus. And it was a serial killer by the name of Don Miller. He had killed uh, four women. He had hidden their bodies. Uh, only one had been recovered. And then he was actually captured after attacking a 14-year-old girl and uh, her 13-year-old brother. And they both survived. And I knew that because of a plea deal that that particular killer had gotten, that he was eventually going to get out of prison. Oh, and so, uh, yeah, and so I wrote about that uh, particular case. Uh, it's And the name of that book is called Killing Women, mm -hmm. uh, The True Story of Don Miller's Reign of Terror. And I like to think that that book had uh, at least maybe a small part in helping to keep him in prison a little bit longer because he was getting parole hearings um, every year because of his status within the uh, correctional system. 
and now it's it's uh, back up to every five years. But eventually, uh, and I, I won't tell you why, because it's a it's a very lengthy story. Uh, it's 484 page book. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, in 2031, Don Miller will be released from prison. I. And it, it's a scary thought, but it's. It is. It is. That's what uh, it is. There, uh, after you had reached out to me, um, I looked up your book and we found a special to watch that you were on about that oh yes and um neil and i were both shocked at that i can't remember how old would he be if he did get paroled at that time uh well if he got parole last year he was up for a a hearing last year and he would be 66 or 67 so he'll be he'll be in his mid-70s when he gets released and, you know, I, I interviewed one of his victim's sisters, and she said, um, before I answer any questions, I need to know why you're writing this book. And no one had ever asked me that. And so I, I was taken aback for just a second, and I, it immediately came to me. I said, people have forgotten who Don Miller is. Mm-hmm. People have forgotten what Don Miller did. Yeah. And people need to know that Don Miller's getting out of prison. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's the reason I wrote that book. Yeah, absolutely. Because it just it's mind blowing that that would even be a possibility for somebody right. that has done that. Right. In, and it's all because of a plea deal. Yeah. Oh, and gosh. so here's here's a weird thing. Um, I, I know your listeners will love this because uh, we're going to get into Grim Paradise, which is which is my latest book. Mm-hmm. And it's about Francis Lacey's murder on Mackinac Island. And she stayed at the Murray Hotel in right. 1960. Uh, that's where her baggage was found. Uh, 16 years after the murder of Francis Lacey, Don Miller, the serial killer, worked for a summer at the Murray Hotel. Shut just, up. No, seriously, just six months before he began his two-year killing spree. And that is a true story. I have got goosebumps right now. That yeah. is insane. Insane. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. That True is, story. Yeah. I unbelievable. Wow. That and that probably when people found out what he had done, that not only people that worked with him later, but even at that summer were like, could that be the same guy? You know, to think right. about that. You know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, now we need to get to why you're here which is grim paradise the cold case search for the mackinac island killer and you mentioned did you come to writing this story after you heard about it on the tour and investigate it how did this come to be well the i heard about the the murder uh, when we were doing the strange escapes paranormal investigation we we had gone downtown there and done the haunts of mackinac tour mm-hmm. and uh I had heard about it and kind of just tucked it away. I never thought about it again. And then uh, I was trying to come up with with an idea for my fourth book. And uh, I was working part time in retirement. And my boss uh, does the uh, Port Huron to Mackinac race every year. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, he's always talking about Mackinac Island at that time of the year and and what a great time he has up there and how fun the race is and everything. And I I mentioned the the Lacey homicide and he said, well, you should you should write about that. You should Mm -hmm. write about that book. 
mm-hmm. or write about that case. And so, uh, and so that was the start of it. That's that's when it all started to come together, and and uh, there was a whole process of trying to get the the police report, um, interviewing, trying to track down people that were alive at that time. Um, trying to get the crime scene photos, things like that. And uh, it's quite a lengthy process. It's not something you just go, oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna write about the Francis Lacey homicide and you know look over a dozen newspapers and write the whole story. There right. had been there had been, I think three books that I were that I was able to find uh, that mentioned the Lacey homicide. and those all had chapters that were about, Five to ten pages long, and that was it. There was there was never anything um, put in the form of a book uh, that outlined the entire investigation. And I thought that's what needs to be done here. Mm-hmm. That's what needs to be done, and so that's what I did. Yeah, and thank you for doing that. I'm sure um, many listeners are grateful, and the Lacey family too. So now we're going to get to the nitty gritty stuff and I'm going to let you take it from here and share the story of Francis Lacey for the listener. Sure. Sure. Um, Francis Lacey was a, uh, a widower, a widow. I'm sorry. She was a widow. Uh, she lived in Dearborn and her husband had died, uh, in 1957. Uh, they had a couple kids that were adults and, uh, they finally convinced Francis uh, to go on vacation up to Mackinac Island just for the weekend. Uh, it was going to be a, a Friday night trip and come back on Sunday. Um, Francis had gone through some depression uh, after her husband died, and rightfully so. Um, and she had been put on some uh, medication. I don't know what the name of it was. Uh, all I know is that... Uh, it was she. She referred to them as her happy pills, and they essentially would would ease the anxiety that she was feeling. And so she hadn't been on a vacation since her husband died. So she went up to Mackinac Island with her her daughter and her son-in-law, and uh, they drove up on a Friday night. And her son-in-law's mother had rented a cabin at British Landing. Okay. And they wanted Francis to stay there for with them. And Francis didn't want to intrude. And I'm certain that it probably had something to do with her, you know, being a widow and and being alone for three years and things like that. So she said, I'm just going to get a hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when they got to the dock, to the ferry dock on early Saturday morning, uh, they stopped at the Chippewa Hotel right at the end of the docks. And it was the weekend of the uh, Chicago to Mackinac race. And so there were thousands of people coming into the island. And so they stopped at the Chippewa and Francis asked, hey, do you have a room? And they said, well, we won't know until uh, about 11 o'clock. And so she didn't want to wait around. So she took a brochure and she tucked it into her purse. And she walked right across the street to the Murray Hotel and the Murray had a room. And so she paid the $5 and some cents and she got a room for two nights uh, on the second floor. And by the way, when I was up there doing my research, I wanted to find the, get the the same room that she had. Which Um, room number was it? It was uh, 126. 
think it was 126. Uh, and they said that they had they had redone all the rooms, and so the the floor layout was not the same. Oh, okay. Yeah, so so I couldn't get that. But anyway, so she got a room at the Murray. It was along the front of the building, so she could see the bay and and the lake and everything. And uh, so she went out uh, after she got a room uh, with her daughter and son-in-law, and they went out to British Landing, and and they hooked up with his mom and and his, uh, I think it was his stepsister and stepbrother. Uh, they were like 16 and 19 years old. And they went around, they did things that you do on Mackinac Island. They saw the sights and they rode the horses and they went to dinner and they bought fudge. And one of one of the the things that Francis loved to do was buy uh, funny postcards and send them out. And so she did that. And uh, by the end of the day, by seven o'clock that night, they were going to go to get dinner. And uh, after dinner, she told her daughter, she said, um, I'm just going to walk out to British Landing tomorrow morning and and her daughter said that's a long way to go mom she said uh it you know it's a long way to walk it's about an hour and a half walk and francis told her um well if i get tired i'll just i'll hail a carriage and and you know ride the rest of the way out and so they were good with that so francis went back to her room at the murray hotel and that evening uh, she went to the front desk three separate times and she left her key each time and she said she'd be right back and she left the hotel. Nobody knows where she went. Uh, nobody knows if she was with somebody after she left the hotel. Nobody knows. But the last time that she did it, she told the desk clerk, this will be the last time that I'm going to leave my key here and I'm going back to my room for the night. So the following morning at about 9, 8.30 to 9, I think it was about 8.30, she showed up at the um, the little cafeteria in the Murray Hotel. And they didn't have any gas. They were waiting for gas for their gas stove, and so they couldn't serve her breakfast. And so she had a cup of coffee and she left. And then um, the police theorized that she came back because the the hostess remembered a woman who resembled her mm -hmm. and that particular woman had um, pancakes bacon cantaloupe and coffee and that becomes important here in the story and and then that was the last time that she was seen by well i'm gonna i'm gonna tune right into uh, another couple that arrives on the island right about the time that francis leaves the murray hotel to walk out to british landing around the west side of the island. Uh, another couple arrives on the island on a ferry and they're not supposed to be there because they're having an affair. Um, their, their spouses aren't supposed to know that they're there. And they rent a bike and the, and the timestamp on the bike is 9.30 a.m. Mm -hmm. And they begin to ride around the island. And at about 11 o'clock they're riding around the west side of the island and they come across a purse laying on the side of the road and uh, they stop and they look in the purse and they find some identification for a woman named Frances Lacey. Now Frances has just left the Murray Hotel 90 minutes earlier. They don't know who she is. 
Um, they just know she's from Detroit. And inside her purse, they find a brochure for the Chippewa Hotel. Surely she must be staying there. So they said, let's take her purse back to the Chippewa Hotel and, and find her and, and we'll turn it over to her. At the same time, they're looking through the purse. They're about, oh, maybe a mile north of uh, uh, Devil's Kitchen. Okay. Along the west side of the island. And uh, they're right near a set of stone, uh, cobblestone pillars with an iron gate that runs between them and okay. a sign that says no trespassing. And as they're looking through the purse, they can hear something or someone lumbering through the brush about 50 feet away. Mm -hmm. And they write it off as a large animal. When in, in reality, what police theorized was it was the killer. Yeah. And he had just killed Mrs. Lacey. But getting back to uh, the purse, mm -hmm. they, they ignored the lumbering through the woods and they take the purse with them and they go back to the Chippewa Hotel and the, the clerk at the Chippewa says, no, we don't have anybody here by the name of Frances Lacey. And of course they wouldn't, you know, she stopped, checked there and she grabbed a brochure and tucked it into her purse. Right. So they decide, hey, you know what? She's from the Detroit area. She's from Dearborn. Let's just take it back to Detroit with us when we go and we'll mm -hmm. track her down and we'll turn it over to her there. And so that's what they decided to do. They carry her purse with them the rest of the day and then they leave the island. So at 11 o'clock that morning, uh, after this couple leaves uh, the area where they found the purse and heads back to town, um, <clears throat> the Lacey family is still waiting at British Landing. They're waiting for Frances and she doesn't show up. And by one, one o'clock in the afternoon, they're quite concerned. Right. And so um, the stepson uh, or the stepbrother to uh, Francis Lacey's son-in-law, he calls the Murray Hotel and they said, well, she checked out about 9.30 this morning or 10.30, something like that. And so he says, I'll grab a bike and I'll go into town and look for her. So he heads out and they decide they're going to call the police. So they contact the state police. Michigan State Police in 1960 had three troopers assigned to the island okay. um, that covered the area not within the village of Mackinac Island, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, the downtown area, if you yes. will, covered by the Mackinac Island police, and then the state police would cover the rest of the island. And so the state police goes out to uh, British Landing. They meet with with uh, the Lacey family. and. The, the trooper that takes the report, he's certain that she's probably just lost. You know, um, they, they take those kind of calls all day long um, and people always show up. And so he wasn't too concerned, but he called the, the Mackinac Island police and had them check her room. And so they go to the Murray Hotel and they check Mrs. Lacey's room. And they determine, first of all, that her luggage is down in the lobby area, in, in the luggage area where people leave their luggage and then they come back and get it later in the day when they leave. Uh, and they also discover under the bed a six pack of Carling Black Label beer. Mm -hmm. Now, the police report doesn't say if it was uh, unopened beer or if it was an empty six pack or if it was a uh, in a carton, it just says we found a six pack of Carling Black Label beer. 
doesn't say anything about keeping it as evidence or anything like that. Because at that time, she's just, they're, they're sure that she's just lost. So mm-hmm. I'm certain they didn't take it as evidence. The trooper, uh, along with the local police and, and a couple volunteers, they grab the police jeep on the island because they know they can check the, the uh, horse trails and roads um, much quicker with that. Right. By 11 o'clock that night, 12 hours after she was supposed to show up at British Landing, she still hasn't been found. And he decides, mm, maybe I should call my boss and let him know what's going on. I can tell you, I would have called my boss long before that. But yeah. Uh, so he calls his, his boss, um, Sergeant Burnett, over at the St. Ignace Post. Of course, it's 11 o'clock at night. Burnett's not going to come over to the island at 11 o'clock at night mm-hmm. and search the trails. Um, the trooper says to him, hey, we're pretty sure she's lost. Um, you know, she hasn't been seen. Sergeant Burnett, he's pretty certain that there's something more to this because it's been 12 hours and she still hasn't shown up. Right. They, they develop these theories. Um, maybe she's injured somewhere. Um, maybe she fell into the lake. Maybe she was suicidal. All these different theories. And then Burnett's thinking in the, the back of his mind, maybe there's foul play involved too. So Monday morning, this she came up missing on July 24th, mm-hmm. uh, which was a Sunday. Um, Monday morning, they have a bunch of volunteers waiting on the island, uh, about 65 of them, and they scour the island all day. Mm-hmm. And they find nothing, no sign of her. Uh, Tuesday... Uh, heavy rain so they call off the search they even brought in tracking dogs um, bloodhounds from Mm -hmm. the west end of the upper peninsula and they actually began following a trail uh, down the boardwalk around the west side of the island but they lost it at the end of the boardwalk Uh, so police were pretty certain that that was probably the path that she had taken okay Um, Tuesday they canceled the search because it's a heavy heavy rain all day Wednesday, the search begins again. Still no sign of her. On Thursday, July 28th, uh, the couple down in Detroit realize when they watch the news, because the Lacey disappearance has now made national news, that they have the purse belonging to Francis Lacey. Oh, wow. And so they call the state police and say, hey, uh, we've got her purse. And so they put him in touch with the detective, uh, the lead detective who actually was stationed at this uh, Marquette post. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets an exact uh, location where they said they found the purse. And the police converge on that particular area at about seven o'clock that night. They begin searching around these stone pillars. And in the road, they find Mrs. Lacey's broken denture plate. It's been run over several times by a carriage, um, and it's literally ground into the pavement. Uh, they they get on the other side of the gate because there's a foul odor. It's been mm-hmm. four days in 90-degree weather. And uh, one of them sees an overturned uh, fishing boat, like mm-hmm. a rowboat. Uh, in the weeds and he looks under the boat 
and there's a pair of dress shoes in a plastic bag. Very unusual. Yeah. And he begins to look a little further beyond that, and he sees some human hair under some uh, brush. Uh, the brush has been intentionally laid up against a tree as if to conceal something. And they discover Francis Lacey's body. Mm -hmm. Francis is laying uh, face down. Her uh, left arm is pulled up behind her back. Her uh, skirt and blouse are both uh, pushed up. So she's basically uh, nude, if you will. Um, she has a pair of uh, white panties, her own white panties that have been uh, used as a ligature around her neck. Stick that has been put behind the knot and twisted uh, to tighten that ligature up. And so they found Mrs. Lacey's body. Mm. And it's now seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. They have to wait for the crime lab personnel to come up from Lansing. And so they assign two troopers to sit with the body okay. all night uh, until the crime scene personnel can get up there the next morning. So the crime scene, um, it's interesting because they do a really good job. The state police did an excellent job. Uh, they found um, small fibers uh, from her nylons um, that were like torn and caught on a fence. Uh, and they actually found uh, human hair um, that was uh, caught on the fence also. And they found some human hair on her body that, that they surmised at that point didn't belong to her because she had black graying hair. Mm -hmm. And they were able to locate some uh, light blonde to brown color hair. Uh, and so that stuff was taken as evidence. Um, they spent five or six hours at the crime scene, and then she was her body was quietly removed by a Coast Guard boat from the west side of the island. And an autopsy was done. And at that autopsy, they recovered some more hair, not a lot more, but uh, four or five strands total, I think, of light-colored blonde to brown or light brown hair. And, uh, of course, they took the, the ligature that was used to strangle her, um, her clothing, uh, her purse that had been turned over uh, by that couple, things like that. And the investigation uh, began into Francis Lacey's homicide. Wow. That's, you know, it's, and if, if someone is listening that's never listened to the podcast or ever been to Mackinac Island, to get to Mackinac Island, you can only get there by ferry or plane. So there's no cars on the island. It's only bikes, horses, or your own two feet. And to think about this happening, and especially in the day, on a very busy weekend, because if it was busy then you know i mean it's insane now i mean it's so busy but the fact that it was then that says a lot and the idea that somebody would grab this woman off the road m185 and take her in there with the probability of getting caught possibly is just insane to me well insane. in the, the island life um, 
if you're not a resident of the island, and as I understand it, there's about 600 residents, or there were at that time, uh, permanent residents. The rest of the island population, uh, for those that haven't been there, are transient seasonal workers or tourists. Mm -hmm. And it is literally, uh, if you talk to anybody that's ever been to Mackinac Island, the majority of them will say, Mackinac Island is such a magical place because there are no there are no cars. Yeah. All you hear is is the clip clop of the horses, um, and in the background you might hear a, a horn from a steamer passing by in Lake Huron. But uh, it really is um, it has a certain air about it, and that's that was the unbelievable part of the Lacey homicide was that. Uh, this was a quiet Sunday morning when most people were still in bed. People hadn't really gotten out onto the street yet and, and started walking around. And it was a beautiful day. You know, how could, how could a woman, a 49-year-old woman, come up missing on a beautiful Sunday morning on Mackinac Island? It was yeah. just so hard to believe. And it still is to this day. It still is because I have gone out, I don't know how many times and walked around that island by myself and never once was I scared about my safety. It was never anything like that because as you mentioned, it's just a magical place. The whole point is you're disconnecting while reconnecting with nature and being involved there. So to see something like this happen there, it just... It breaks your heart. It breaks your heart for her. She's taking a vacation for the first time. And then for this island where people come and you just, it's just mind blowing. You know, it just, you hate to have that happen. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and Mrs. Lacey's family, um, they stuck with it, you know, with, with the investigation, but their only source of information uh, was from the media mm -hmm. or from television. Um, because as you know, I, I mean, it's just common sense that the family is always the first suspect. And so the police didn't share information with the family. They had to read it in the newspaper and things like that. Oh, uh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. And that so the investigation began... Um, well, it, basically, it began as soon as she was reported missing. But once her body was found, they realized, no, she wasn't suicidal. No, um, she wasn't depressed. No, she wasn't injured somewhere on the island, uh, you know, got hurt while she was walking. She'd been murdered. Mm -hmm. She'd been assaulted and murdered. And so the police force on the island grew from three Mackinac Island city police officers and three state troopers to well over 25 to 30 um, detectives and troopers from around the state. Wow. Uh, and they began, literally, they thought that the investigation was going to be a quick, um, hey, we caught him within a couple days. Uh, they looked at a guy by the name of Paul Strantz. Paul was from... Um, Believe it or not, he was down by Goshen, Indiana. Was he by me? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was a seasonal worker on the island or a seasonal resident. I don't know what you want to call him, but he always seemed to be in the 
uh, the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and so the city police knew about him and, and they dropped his name to the detective and the detective uh, from MSP said, I want to talk to him. So they brought him in and he got really offended that the state police would consider him a suspect in the Lacey disappearance. Now, this was before the body had even been found. Okay. And so, uh, so they said, well, how about if we come search your room? Can we search your room? And he said, yeah. So he took him over and they searched his room and they found a crumpled up newspaper article about women defending themselves um, that he'd cut out of a newspaper in Indiana. Uh, they found some drawings of his with of women and uh, they found some rope and uh, just some really weird stuff. But they didn't have enough to hold him. Right. When the body was found, the lead detective, Tony Sprato from MSP, he said, I want him picked up on suspicion of murder. And so they found him coming out of one of the restaurants on the island and they arrested him right there. And if you if you uh, research this homicide through uh, newspapers.com, you'll find articles that said suspect arrested in, in the Lacey disappearance. Uh, and they're referring to Paul Strands. Wow. And it wasn't long after his arrest that the detective realized we don't have enough to hold him. Mm-hmm. And so he was released. Wow. So he was released. Uh, there was another guy they looked at by the name of Harold Asp. And Harold worked at the uh, Grand Hotel as a bartender. And he was a very cantankerous drunk. Uh and he suddenly quit for no reason. He always seemed to have a chip on his shoulder. And he quit, I think it was the morning that Mrs. Lacey disappeared. Okay. And uh, he he left his baggage on the docks, the ferry docks. And he turned up in Detroit without his baggage. He had checked into a hotel down there and then he disappeared. He paid for the motel room and then he disappeared. When they checked the room in Detroit, they discovered his coat or his uh, suit jacket. And in it was a, a baggage claim for Mackinac Island. Well, the number matched some baggage left on the ferry dock. And so they considered him, hey, maybe this is our guy. So they seized the, uh, the luggage that was left on the island. And they started looking for, for Harold Asp. They knew he was from Indiana, so they let the Indiana State Police know. Well, word got out down in Indiana, and Harold Asp called him up one day, and he said, hey, I understand the Michigan State Police want to talk to me. I'm right here. Come get me. And so they, they picked him up, and the detectives flew down to Indianapolis, and they interviewed him. And... I don't know what that interview consisted of. It was not in any of the 2,000 pages of police reports. It simply said that we're convinced beyond any doubt that Harold Asp had nothing to do with the Lacey homicide. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Harold Asp flew back to the island with the Michigan State Police detectives to clear his name. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So Harold Asp, uh, he was cleared also. Um... As the investigation was getting underway into the Lacey homicide, uh, police knew about uh, 
a triple homicide at the Starved Rock State Park in Illinois. And uh, at that time, they had no one under arrest in that. But the fact that uh, three women were supposedly or allegedly raped and then bludgeoned to death um, in a state park, Mm -hmm. uh, basically at the south end of Michigan, just into Illinois, um, the police considered maybe there was a a connection to that. When they actually uh, made an arrest in that case uh, four or five months after the Lacey homicide. That particular suspect, they found out he had been arrested uh, on the weekend of the uh, Lacey homicide uh, and had been released, I think on Saturday, the day before the homicide, and then had to be to work on Monday morning, which they were able to confirm that he did make it to work and they didn't think there was any way that he could have made it from Chicago to Mackinac Island, committed the Lacey homicide and then made it back on right. Monday. Right. So there was nothing to tie that case to the uh, the Mackinac Island murder. Um, they looked at several guys from the island, uh, various workers that liked to kid around a lot and they'd kid their co- co-workers and say, oh yeah, I killed Mrs. Mrs. Lacey, it was an insurance job and this and that and the other thing. And police would talk to them and they'd clear their clear their names. Um, they looked at uh, the murder of an of another elderly lady in Flint. Two weeks after Mrs. Lacey was murdered, a lady by the name of Bertha de Corville uh, went to Mackinac Island with her granddaughter. They spent the weekend there. Uh, and then they went back to Flint, took a bus back to Flint, and Mrs. DeCorville was found murdered uh, literally on the night that she got back from the island. And they went on the assumption that maybe there was a connection between Mrs. DeCorville being on the island. Maybe the killer followed her back to Flint and, and killed her. Um, it turns out that uh, that was not the case. And I've never been able to determine if the de Corville homicide was ever solved or not. I yeah, that was my it. other question because I, I read that in the book and I was curious if that was ever solved or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. Mrs. de Corville was not raped. Um, mm-hmm. She was simply beaten. Um, and she had a, I think one of her stockings had been stuffed into her mouth. Um, but she'd been discovered by her granddaughter and it was very traumatic. So. So they determined that, that uh, the Flint homicide was not involved. And and they just basically, as the years went on, they would get occasional tips. Um, they would follow up on them. Um, sometimes it looked promising. More often than not, it didn't or it wasn't. Uh, they looked at um, a murder in, I thought this was fascinating, a murder in Minnesota it was a contract hit. A guy had paid uh, a couple thugs to murder his wife. He was a big name attorney out there. And one of the guys that was involved in that uh, was the money man. He was like the middleman who, I think he took the gun from the bad guys, got rid of it, 
and then facilitated the money exchange to them from the guy that hired the killers. And uh, somebody, it was the the pharmacist or the druggist, druggist on Mackinac Island uh, had come into the police and said, hey, I got this bad check last summer and I think this guy's the same guy that's involved in that homicide out in Minnesota. Uh, and so they looked into that and there never really was a clear answer to that. Um, Interesting. Yeah, uh, the police report never really, never really explained uh, whether or not this guy was a legitimate suspect because he had the same name. Uh, he went by the same alias. They had some handwriting samples on the bad check on Mackinac Island. And even more than that, I thought it was fascinating that one of the guys involved in that particular case was from Michigan. The The actual killer in the Minnesota case was from Michigan, was living in Lansing at the time of the Lacey homicide, and his mother lived 90 miles from the bridge. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and there was never any follow-up that I could find in the police reports about checking into this guy. Because he's obviously a contract killer. Right, right. So if Mrs. Lacey's homicide was in fact an insurance hit or something, right? maybe somebody hired him. But there was never any follow-up done to that. Because I think the one thing that the listener needs to know about Mrs. Lacey that you talk about in the book is her financial situation. Can you share that with the listener, what it was at that time? Yeah. Um, Mrs. Lacey, when when her husband died, she took over his business. Um, He was into uh, real estate and I I think it was stocks and bonds. Um, And she became reasonably wealthy or comfortable, I wouldn't say wealthy, but comfortable, maybe wealthy for that time. Uh, And her two kids uh, were in line to get some of that inheritance when Mrs. Lacey died. Right. And it's interesting if you talk to uh, people from the island, as I did, Mm -hmm. uh, some of them think that the murder was committed by somebody that lived on the island, a residence, a resident. Some of those people believe it was a contract hit, an insurance hit. Right. Um, And some of them think it was an outsider. Because I think the thing is with something like that, they would have to know. With the insurance, you know, like if somebody was, they'd have to know that she had that any kind of money with that but it would have to be the kids that would be and they were ruled out weren't they they were um there really wasn't there really wasn't a big investigation into her son-in-law that i could find they interviewed him a couple times um but i never really got the sense that he was a, a legitimate suspect okay um he, uh, Mrs. Lacey's daughter, Kay, uh, she and, and Wesley, her son-in-law, they divorced in 63, um, three okay. years after the murder. Um, and I did try to track him down, uh, but he is deceased. I was able to track down 
Mrs. Lacey's 20-year-old daughter, who's now in her 80s. And uh, bless her heart, the first first thing she said was, uh, yeah, that's my mother. And, and she agreed to answer some questions. And I said, well, I'll just email them to you because she doesn't live in the state anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I emailed them to her. And I started at the beginning uh, in terms of what was your relationship with Wesley? You know, and then I was going to lead the second set of questions was going to lead into the murder. And then the third set would be, what, what did you do after the murder? Uh, and she immediately had changed her mind, said, I do not want to be a part of this. Um, my mother would be appalled if she knew you were writing a book about this. And um, I, I'm not going to answer any questions. Mm-hmm. All I could do was say, I am extremely sorry for intruding on your privacy uh, and you'll never hear from me again. Right, right. Um, so they looked into, the police also looked into um, a couple other serial killers from around the country, Hugh Byron Morris, uh, who went on a killing spree uh, all across the country. Um, and I thought their interview with him was interesting. Uh, they interviewed him about all these murders that he had committed across the country because he had traveled through Michigan. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically the report said they interviewed Hugh Byron Morris and he said that uh, in 1960 he was in Washington and Oregon, so he couldn't be involved. And that was it. That was the extent of the police report uh, wow. for, that, for Hugh Byron Morris' interview. So um, to this day, um, the Michigan State Police still receive tips occasionally. Um, they do try to follow up on them, um, mm-hmm. but that's that's where we run into the problem. Yeah, and that is the either the misplacement or the um, loss of or the destruction of the evidence in this case. Yeah, that's a big one. Um... And we'll touch back on that because one thing I want to do for the listener is to maybe give them idea of where the layout of where this happened on the island because it could perhaps give them an idea of just, you know, actually just where it was located at, I guess is what it, I should just sure. say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the place where Mrs. Lacey was murdered is north of Devil's Kitchen. Um, which actually uh, I considered as a title of the book, uh, North uh-huh. of Devil's Kitchen. And, and my publisher said, no, that's not going to work. So, uh-huh. um, but about, I don't, I don't know, maybe it's a half a mile north of, of Devil's Kitchen, but along the, along the Lakeshore Road, um, there is uh, up in the bluff uh, on the east side of the road is Stonecliff the uh the inn at stonecliff mm-hmm. uh in 1960 stonecliff was owned by the uh, moral moral rearmament movement and they owned that property where mrs lacy was murdered and the uh, there was a path that led from lakeshore road up to stonecliff and the path uh is lined at the entrance with these six to eight foot cobblestone pillars Uh, with an iron gate between them that says no trespassing. When I went up there to do my uh, 
my research, I just walked out from town and I thought, I'll never be able to find this place. Because right. I hadn't, I, I had seen some pictures um, in the news, old newspapers, but I said, I'll never find this place. And I walked around a bend in the road and I am telling you what, that place looks exactly as it did in 1960. Really? Those pillars and that gate still stand to this day. See, and that's so funny, but you know what? The way you're talking, I don't often ride that way or walk that way. And mm -hmm. so you're not, for me, I'm not going in that direction to know that. And I was curious because when I think of Stonecliff, I think of going up the other way. I don't think mm -hmm. of that back there because I don't, can you even, will they let you go up there? Or is it still like, no, no. yeah, no, it's, it's actually private property now. Uh, right. It's that particular area where the murder occurred, I don't believe is owned by Stonecliff anymore. It's owned by um, some private uh, residences um, where people have built homes. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so you, you can't get beyond that gate unless right. you trespass. And I'm certainly not going to do that. No, uh, there's no. no way I would do that. So, and I'm not, and we're not encouraging the listener to do that either because oh, gosh, obviously no. there's nothing there that is going to help anything, you know, especially at this point, anything right. that would have been part of it would have been discovered. And so I think that that's just it, but that just gives you an idea even as somebody on the island to know where it's at but devil's kitchen is a huge area that people stop at and you know they look at it but when you're on m185 you never know when people are going to be coming it's constant it right. could be horses it could be bikes they could be walking they could be running so it just is mind-blowing about that um with that and um I, I do have to say that I, I thought the thoroughness of the Michigan Police Department and recovering the evidence in such a difficult area at that day, and especially days later, was so, it was so good. And as a uh, former officer, were you impressed with that at that time in 1960? And did you get a lot of that from the articles or the now the police report uh most of it i got from the police report um the the state police did i think they did an outstanding job you yes. know here's a, the murder of a tourist on an island uh where there's no transportation other than bikes and horses and foot travel and they've got to try to piece this together and they're coming up with with small pieces of fabric and they find the denture plate and they find five to six hairs um you know that's in that particular environment after that heavy rain that that was on tuesday i thought they did an outstanding job uh and all of that came from the police report they even had uh they had taken measurements and if you read my book grim paradise uh, you will find a crime scene diagram in there that the state police did not do. That was prepared by me based on the measurements taken by the Michigan State Police. Oh, okay. And so, so you, can, you can literally get a feel for, by looking at the crime scene photos, you know, what this 
this uh, crime scene looked like at ground level and how everything was was laid out in terms of distance and location and things like that. You know, I've read the book and it's so funny because one of the first things I do if there's pictures in there is I go to the pictures. Oh, and I do too. I always go to the pictures and so I'm looking at them now and it's just it's just so crazy to see this like this but it's it's so wooded it's so wooded with all of this right there too that's the other thing but yeah your layout is wow that's just that's incredible yeah those they had to have heard that those people on oh. that day heard that oh there's they, no doubt they interrupted the killer oh my gosh that's so that's so eerie um and i think too like the hair the hair at the scene is a crucial part of ruling some of these suspects out, wasn't it? Absolutely it was, because every person that the state police talked to, that they interviewed, they would ask them, hey, give us a hair sample. Hey, give us a hair sample. And they would take head hair and pubic hair, mm -hmm. because there's a difference. In, and some of the hair that was retrieved from Mrs. Lacey's body was in fact pubic hair. Mm -hmm. And so they would take samples of both. And the, uh, the police report had, uh, had the, the scientist that did the analysis would forward uh, his report to the director of the Michigan State Police. Uh, at that time, he was the commissioner of the Michigan State Police, Joseph Childs. And he would keep him updated and he would say in his report, uh, I've, I've compared um, the known hair of such and such a person with the unknown hair from the Lacey homicide. And there's no match between the, the hairs. Um, they did obviously, uh, I'm sure your, your listeners know that uh, they did not have DNA analysis in 1960. Right. They simply, the, the, the scientist would simply compare the hairs and he would look for similar characteristics in the cells and in the color and things like that. And then his report, if there were enough similarities, his report would say something to the effect that this person cannot be eliminated as a suspect based on the fact that there are the, the comparisons are similar. So that, was this done like under microscope? Am I assuming? Like, is do you think that's how? Oh, it was sure. Done? Okay, yeah. that's what I figured. Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. That. He would he would compare them under a microscope. Uh, he would compare slides of the two hairs, and uh, he would make his determination. Interestingly enough, in the middle of of two thousand pages of police reports, I found one name of one guy, and. It's a, it's a one-page report, basically. And then there's the report from the scientist to Commissioner Childs. And his report says, this person cannot be eliminated as a suspect because the characteristics between the known hair samples and the unknown hair samples from Mrs. Lacey's body are similar. Okay. So he can't be excluded as a suspect. And, and what happened in that particular case was this guy, uh, and I'm not going to give his name out here, um, right. 
But I will tell you that he was a one-man crime spree between Michigan and Florida. And he would go break into houses and, and things like that. And he got caught mm -hmm. in 1960, in November. And uh, they interviewed him. And he said, yeah, he says, I've been on Mackinac Island for the summer and this and that and the other thing. Well, the detective interviewing him knew about the homicide, the Lacey homicide. And so he called the investigators up there and they said, re-interview him, pin him down. So they interviewed him again. He said, oh, no, no, no. I wasn't on Mackinac Island. Oh, no, no, no. No, I might have said Fox Island, but I was not on Mackinac Island. And so they gave him a polygraph test and he passed. But the report from the scientist at the crime lab says he can't be eliminated as a suspect because his hair is similar to the hair that was taken off Mrs. Lacey's body. That's the end of it. There's no additional follow-up after that. They cleared him because of a polygraph. Yeah, no. that's the one thing. We'll get back. I'll let, I'll let you continue on and we'll, we'll step back to that. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, if you read uh, John Douglas, uh, the FBI profiler, uh, if you read his books, he will tell you that polygraph exams are often not that accurate. And so if if a person is a psychopath or a sociopath, they can pass that polygraph because they have no sense of guilt. Yes. And they've learned to compensate. And I explain that briefly in the book. Um, they learn to compensate uh, and almost believe what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And that's how they pass the polygraph exam. And so when when I look back at that particular suspect and it says, well, we gave him a polygraph and he passed, so therefore he's not a suspect anymore. In today's world, no, no, no. Yeah, because was was were polygraphs at that time so much part of ruling suspects out? Is that something that you found that they relied and on a lot? Absolutely. Yeah, they gave oh. a lot of polygraphs. It's like uh, in my book, Killing Women, mm -hmm. um, in the mid-70s, anybody witness to anything in that particular case or any one of those four homicides, they hypnotized them. Now, hypnosis can't be used in, in Michigan courts, but everybody got hypnotized back then. Well, we took them to a hypnotist. We took them to a hypnotist. We took them to a hypnotist. And they weren't even using a forensic hypnotist or a psychiatrist. They were they were using some guy that, that had a show on the road to give people to quit smoking. Uh, so it was really weird. Um, yeah. So, and I'm sure that I can almost guarantee that uh, polygraph exams today are probably done a lot differently than they were 63 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the equipment is much more sophisticated. Uh, but if if you follow today's standards um, and you listen to uh, like an FBI profiler or state police profiler, uh, somebody like John Douglas, um, he'll tell you, no, polygraphs no. are not that accurate when you're talking to a sociopath well and they're not even admissible in court are they 
No, they're not. No. So it's almost as if why do it, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. So that that is one guy um, that I think that the Michigan State Police could still look at. Mm-hmm. But there's there's one variable missing there, and that's the evidence. Yes. Um, now, again, we'll get to that because I want to share that with the listener because I feel that this is a that's a big part of it. Um, now, in your book, they weren't sure if at first she was sexually assaulted, correct? That's correct. When did that change? It was early on. I, I would say it was in within a week or two okay. that they determined that she was uh, okay. sexually assaulted. Uh, and it had to do with um, not being able to locate the tails of the sperm that was collected as evidence. Okay. Uh, without that, it's difficult to determine uh, when they were deposited. Okay. And so therefore they couldn't, initially they could not say whether or not uh, she had been raped or whether or not she had had a consensual relationship at some point and it was still present, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, it does. Uh, Somehow, and and I, I have to say that the police report, even though it was 2,000 pages, was lacking a lot of information uh, that maybe had been there over the years, but maybe was lost at some point because it certainly wasn't in the copy that I got. But at some point, they did make a determination that she had been sexually assaulted. Okay. All right. And I mean, you've talked about, like in reading the police report, that there are some parts that really have stuck out to you. Are there some other ones that you can think of that you'd like to share? You mentioned some of the suspects and anything else? Uh, I I think the biggest one was the guy that said, I'd been on Mackinac Island for the summer. And then when he was confronted, he said, oh, no, it wasn't me. No, I wasn't on Mackinac Island. And his hair matches matches the hair taken off Mrs. Lacey's body. Yeah. Uh, That stood out to me. Um, I I went back and read that like three or four times, that particular section of the police report. the other thing that stands out is is later in, in like in 2011, 2010, 2011, uh, well, it was earlier than that. They did have uh, two profilers, one from the FBI and one from the Michigan State Police, do a profile mm-hmm. on the killer. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating. Yes. Uh, because it's exactly what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um uh, both of those um, profiles were done um, by separate police agencies or separate law enforcement agencies, and they're remarkably similar yeah. in in everything. They described the attack on Mrs. Lacey as a, and they both used the term blitz style attack. It happened very quickly. She was... Um, likely knocked unconscious uh, initially. Um, She had no reason to fear the person, whether or not he was behind her, waiting on the side of the road or coming at her. Um, She had no reason to fear that person. Um, The person that that did this was um, probably a loner, uh, had an intense hatred for women. 
probably had not seen a lot of uh, nude women before, hence the fact that her clothing was pushed up um, to like her shoulders and her waist. It was just, they were both remarkably similar. And, and I think that those could still be used mm-hmm. in this investigation if, yeah. if something developed uh, as far as the location of the evidence and a, a viable suspect. I think those profiles would probably be very useful. Yeah. Now those those profiles are simply um, a tool. They're an investigative right. tool. And, and it's important that your listeners understand that. And I'll give you a quick example. Only because uh, I was a police artist for 20 years, 25 years. Uh, and, a, and a composite drawing of a suspect is nothing more than a tool for the investigators to use to go around and say, hey, does this drawing remind you of anyone? It's simply a tool. It isn't mm-hmm. It isn't something where I would take a, a drawing to a gas station and say, hey, is this, does this look like so-and-so? Um, right. Yeah, it looks like Joe Smith. Well, let's right. go arrest him. Right. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't base an arrest simply on a composite drawing in, in the, the the same terms, you wouldn't base an arrest simply on an FBI profile. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. I think, too, if the listener is not, John Douglas, um, it, he wrote the book Mindhunter, but the series on Netflix, Mindhunter, is, is, is incredible because it shows you how this man helped create to understand who this person might be creating some of these crimes, especially the serial killers. He would go in and talk to serial killers. And I think like you're mentioning, it can help decide. Cause when you said that, when you described what they said that the criminal was like, I don't remember which one it was in the book, but it was the, the one guy that would walk out naked in front of people. And to yes. me, to me, that, that characteristic reminded me of him and but he was ruled out wasn't he he was that it was simply a a sunbather Uh um just a sunbather there was another guy um and i changed his name in the book Uh um but he would simply jump out and stare at women yes that's the one i was thinking of that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um definitely strange but yeah um, it, it makes you wonder if maybe he had some emotional problems too. Right. And I, and, and then, you know, there were other ones that you mentioned in there. And when you hear that, then you go back to those ones that you mentioned and some of their maybe previous crimes or other things that now, if somebody were to re really relook at this case and if they, you know, even reach out to you and said, you know, this, to me, those would be ones that you're like, okay, you know what? They're kind of showing some of these characteristics that go along with the profile. And like you said, you can't go arrest them because of it. Right. But right. you could, you know, and especially if they use like a polygraph, there's just so much more involved with it in that. And um and and John Douglas, it, it it's fascinating his his research on all of it and the understanding of it, of the mind, of why of what makes them tick and and what you said, like, you know, how they attacked her and, and what they did with it, because it doesn't make sense right. during the day to do that. It just right. doesn't at all. Yeah, and, and these profiles understand that a profiler, um, the, the best opportunity he, he has to create an accurate profile 
is to visit the crime scene when it's fresh. And you're talking about an FBI profiler and a state police profiler who did these uh, who did these profiles 50 some years after the murder right. simply by reviewing the police report and and the crime scene photos. And that's that's a very difficult job to do. But mm-hmm. uh, I've read both profiles and I I would agree. Now I'm not a FBI profiler um, and I don't pr- pretend to be one, but uh, I would say they're probably very accurate because they're both spot on. If you read my book, Killing Women, about Don Miller, the serial killer uh, from Michigan State, uh, you'll read a letter that Don Miller wrote to me uh-huh. where he admitted uh, four of the murders. And now, now, it wasn't anything new because right. he'd already admitted them years earlier, but he never used the word murdered. He never used the word killed. He simply said, I took her life. And then I took the lives of three other women. And another thing he doesn't do in that letter is he doesn't mention uh, the reason that he's went to prison in the first place. And that was for raping a 14 year old girl and trying to kill her and her 13 year old brother. Wow. Never mentions that. And I think that's significant. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you show that to a profiler, they would say this guy's a sociopath. Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah. it's it's eerie. Makes your skin crawl with that. It really does. Yeah. Um, have you been able to talk to anybody to, that might be looking into this cold case? I took all the information. Well, let me jump back a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll tell you how, uh, how I developed this name. Uh, and... This guy was never talked to, uh, was never considered a suspect in this murder, was never even thought of as a suspect in this murder, in the Lacey homicide. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I came across his name three different times, and I finally said to myself, why does this guy's name keep popping up? And so a friend of mine suggested, hey, you should write a book about this guy, about this case. Uh, He'd been... um, uh, sent to prison as the result of a murder in 1973 that had gone uh, as a cold case and uh, he was not caught until 1998 and was convicted until 2001 of that 1973 murder. And so I said to myself, I said, why does his name keep popping up? I said, yeah, maybe I'll look into it because I was I was kind of tossing around the idea of the Mackinac murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe I'd do this guy. So I started looking into it, and it turns out that uh, this guy was, in 1959, had gotten married right out of high school and had told the local paper, I'm going to go to the Michigan Institute of Mining and Technology in Houghton to get a degree. All right, so he's got uh, familiarity with the uh, Upper Peninsula. Okay, mm-hmm. Northern Michigan. Uh, it turns out that in 1961, a year after the Lacey homicide, literally the same month, uh, he was arrested in Ann Arbor for raping a blind woman and leaving her for dead. So he gets divorced from the wife that he married in 1959. She divorces him and he goes to prison. 
and he gets out in 1969. In 1973, he kidnaps a woman in Owasso, rapes her and shoots her and ditches the gun and her purse. And uh, that case goes cold until 1998 when he's caught on some DNA evidence. In the meantime, in 1982, uh, a 16-year-old girl comes up missing in Carson City, and her body is found west of Cadillac in northern Michigan um, in a grove of Christmas trees. And she has been strangled to the point where whatever ligature was used, and I don't know what it was, it is bound around her throat so tight that it is cut through her skin and, and into her spine. Oh my God. Which is, I think, similar to the, the method of operation used in the Lacey homicide. Mm -hmm. uh, that case eventually, without going into all the details, uh, that case eventually was uh, dismissed because a couple witnesses' statements didn't coincide with what had been put in the search warrant about what they said. And so the judge threw all the evidence out and that case to, to this very day remains unsolved, although we know who did it. Mm -hmm. That guy literally was living uh, in 1982, about 10 miles from where I live right now. Wow. Uh, he was living in Eaton Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and as I got digging into this case, um, I checked his, uh, physical characteristics and lo and, be lo and behold, he had, uh, light blonde to brown colored hair. And as I read through the, the Lacey homicide report, police talked to, um, a lot of students from the university of Michigan on the Island back in the sixties. A lot of U of M students went up there to work for the summer. Mm -hmm. Unlike today, they get a lot of uh, migrant workers from, from the islands. But in the 60s, a lot of U of M students. Well, when this guy uh, was arrested for raping that woman in 1961 in Ann Arbor, that blind woman, he was a University of Michigan student. I think as an investigator, you would look at that Mm -hmm. And you would say, there's just too many things here. We should look at this guy, maybe. Maybe right. at least talk to him or talk to maybe his former wife, if she's still alive. Right. Um, and see what we could come up with. Uh, I know that he was talked to. Now, whether or not it was about the Lacey homicide, I don't know. Right. Uh, but I also know that he didn't say anything. Is he in prison now or no, not anymore? He was, uh, he died, uh, in August of 2022. Okay. But at the time that I was putting this book together, yes, he was still alive. Um, okay. and the other thing that, that I wanted to share with, with the investigators that I turned all this information over to was the fact that Mrs. Lacey's watch came up missing and has never been located. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the traits of a serial killer is to take a memento from his victim. And in this case, 
uh, Mrs. Lacey's watch has never been recovered. It was never published in the media that her watch was missing ever. Right. Until 2008, when a detective from St. Ignace said, hey, let's go ahead and release the description of the watch and mm -hmm. maybe maybe somebody will find it in a jewelry box or in an antique store. It's a great idea. Right. So in the uh, in Grim Paradise, you'll find a description of the watch. You'll find the serial number to the watch. You'll find a photo of a similar uh, watch so that you know what you're looking for. And at the time that I turned all of my information over to the state police that I had developed about this particular guy that I think they should look at, I said, maybe you ought to see if his wife is still alive, mm -hmm. his first wife, because sometimes a serial killer will take that memento and they'll give it either to a girlfriend or a spouse or, uh, you know, someone as a gift. Don Miller did that. Um, and they'll relive that fantasy of that murder through that particular item. And so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if they found this guy's ex-wife from the early 60s and just said to her, hey, did he ever give you a, a little watch? Yeah. I mean, it can't hurt. Well, they've had 63 years to solve this and they haven't yeah. yet. So, yeah. Well, and that leads us to the big bombshell that you've mentioned and that the files for this, the evidence. Can you share with the listener what the story is on that? Well, uh, a family member of Mrs. Lacey's contacted the state police in, I think it was 2010. And so he reopened the investigation and he sent an email to the crime lab. And he said, hey, you know, we've got some relatives here. Um, they're curious about the case. We may have some new leads. Could you tell me where the evidence is? This went to the Michigan State Police Crime Lab in uh, Diamonddale, just outside of Lansing. And the response that he got was an email back that said, the evidence has either been lost, misplaced, or destroyed. Along those lines, and I speak from experience here, in the mid-90s, uh, we would take big pieces of evidence to the crime lab to be analyzed, and then they would store it. Uh, okay. They used to have, uh, Michigan State Police in the 70s had a, a long-term long storage unit. And uh, so my first thought was, because I had the receipts showing that the evidence was transported to the long-term storage in 1976 from St. Ignace to Lansing, uh, I thought maybe it's still in long-term storage. I then learned uh, from experience that in the 90s, the state police said, hey, we're not going to store everybody's evidence anymore. We're going to ship it back to the original agency that, that took the evidence in, and they can store it because we don't have the room. Okay. And if it was a state police case, they would send it back to the post where it originated from. So in the in the case of the Lacey homicide, theoretically, it would have been sent back to the St. Ignace Post. Right. And if the St. Ignace Post didn't have it, 
it likely would have been transferred to the district headquarters, which would be in Marquette. Okay. Uh, for that particular MSP district, which is District 8. That's the entire Upper Peninsula. So there's the, a thought in my mind that, well, it can't be located right now. And yes, maybe it was destroyed, but has anybody checked the district headquarters in Marquette to see if it still exists? Right. I don't know. I'm hoping that the detective that I passed all the information on to has done that or is going to do that. Oh, I so, hope so I think there's still a, a, a chance, albeit slim, that maybe the evidence still does exist. It's a it's a homicide investigation. Right. And I, I find it hard to believe that an organization as professional as the Michigan State Police would arbitrarily destroy evidence in an unsolved homicide. Well, but, and as yeah, and as you have said prior to us starting recording, they can't even still talk to you about it because it's an open case. Correct. Correct. So why would evidence, you know, you, you do, you hope that it's not been destroyed for that reason. Right. Right. Uh, although I did, I do uh, cite a case in the book um, toward the end uh, where there was a, a, a John Doe body found. Uh, and this is not related to the homicide uh, on Mackinac Island. But it was a John Doe case that had been unsolved for like eight years. And the detective work in the case went back to find the evidence and discovered that it had all been destroyed. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. In an unsolved murder um, in the UP. And so that kind of fueled my fear that maybe the evidence has been destroyed. But then I was talking to another cold case detective and he said, well, the evidence if it did exist, it wouldn't be stored in St. Ignace. It would be stored at the 8th District headquarters in Marquette. So okay. that's where we're at. We don't know if the evidence still exists. If it does, I think that it's a solvable case. Yeah, I completely agree because of the hair and they did take sperm, correct? Correct. And, so and you have, if it's been properly uh, stored and pack, packaged and stored. Um, let's say the, the panties that were used to strangle her, uh, those may have touched DNA on them after all these years still. Yeah. So there's a possibility that this case could be solved if the, uh, if the evidence could be located. Oh gosh, I hope so. I really truly hope so. I hope that officer is reading that and takes it to that point because that's that's what it comes down to is the closure of this case for this family you know yeah yeah they deserve that and you mentioned that the family back in 2010 do you know if anybody else still checks up on the case i don't uh mm -hmm. i was not able to locate that particular family member mm -hmm. um i talked to some people on the island that that remembered the case uh one lady um she was very elderly and she said, uh, I mentioned Paul Strance's name and she said, oh yeah. She said, we were all petrified because he was uh, just a local guy that would go around town doing odd jobs. And he'd been in my mother's house like a week before the murder, um, cleaning our windows. And mm -hmm. she said, we were all just petrified when that happened. Oh, and then wow. I talked to another guy, um, Dennis Cawthorn and, and uh, 
Oh, all yeah. things Mackinac. If, if you haven't talked to Dennis, mm-hmm. he is a wealth of information. Yes. Uh, he he remembered it. He wrote a book, uh, Mackinac Island, Inside Up, Close and Personal. And he has a, a short chapter uh, devoted to the Lacey homicide and, and what people felt about it at that time. Oh, my gosh. I'm sure the fear, because that place doesn't have that. I mean, stuff happens, but mostly it's like maybe somebody's drunk and they throw a bike. I've seen sure. somebody be drunk and throw a bike into the wastebasket and they arrested them, you know. Right. But you have, you know, little things that happen, but nothing like this. So well, violent crime, and it's important for your, your listeners to understand that violent crime on Mackinac Island is... Uh, and at least in 1960 was unheard of. Yes. Literally. And I have never. And the only time I had insomnia this last fall and I got up to go for a walk because I love to walk the quiet streets. And the only reason why I didn't go past Mission Point is it was so dark. And I was just like, this is really dark. I can't really see. That was sure. it. I wasn't scared of anybody doing anything to me. It was that it was so dark. Right. So I think that goes along with it. Um, so with your book, can you share with the listeners where they can not only get this book, but also your other books as well? Oh, and this is the best part of the interview here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my books are available, obviously, on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Schuler's Books. Any bookstore uh, where you can buy books can order them for you. But okay. I can tell you some some. Um, retailers that people are familiar with uh, where they can find them. And one is Cops and Donuts in Clare, uh, the Clare City Bakery. Uh, and the other one I was really excited about uh, was the Island Bookstore on yes. Island. Now, I Gary. saw yeah. it there. I saw yeah. it there. Uh-huh. I, I was very excited about that. Yeah. And then um, there's a, a bookstore in Lansing uh, that opened a couple years ago. And it deals strictly in um, uh, crime and the paranormal and the unusual. And the bookstore is called Dead Time Stories. And uh, it's it's in Lansing, Michigan. And uh, she carries all of my books there. Uh, and then there, I think there's a, a bookstore in Marquette um, that contacted me. And they are also carrying it. Awesome. I think there's probably a lot more carrying it than I know about because yeah. word is getting out that yeah. that it that it's available. Yes. Well, I got it on Amazon. Also, it um, do you have it on Audible for people to listen to as well? It is both uh, both Killing Women and Grim Paradise are on Audible. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I will re- tell you that that uh, Killing Women is is uh, about a thirteen hour listen. Okay. You got to be going on a long trip because that's a big book. But listen, um, I'm listening to Barbara Streisand's, and it's 48 hours, so you're good. Oh, okay. okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. you're good. You're good. So, and and these were not narrated by me. Um, okay, they were narrated by professional voice actors. So, okay, that's that's great. Um, and for the listener to know, all these links will be available. Um, through my website that is down in the show notes and it will take you in there um, for you to go to and be able to click on and purchase the book. So I will have that all available for them to do that. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listener? 
I, you know, I don't think so. I do have a website. Uh, it's called, it's just uh, rodsadler.com. And uh, you can find all my books on there. Um, you can find a lot of the, the very gracious reviews that people have written about uh, my books. And uh, you'll kind of get a feel for what I do. Um, stay tuned because I am working on a fifth book right now. Um, that's going to detail a child killer in the mid eighties here in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I have a potential project beyond that. Um, we'll just leave it at that right now. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I, I appreciate you doing this because it is something that it was so well investigated and, and then to see it be cold for so long and you just want to see some closure for it. It's, it's it's stuff like this that gets these cases solved it really is it gets the word out and for any of the listeners that have any information do you know where they could possibly how they could maybe share tips any information where they could send that to well you could certainly uh you could send it to me um Mm -hmm. uh, but more than that if it's if it's more than just hey i think joe blow did it um if it's a legitimate piece of of information that they have, uh, probably contacting the uh, detective at the St. Ignace Post uh-huh. uh, would be the best avenue, uh, because when when they get a tip, they act on it. Yeah, and they're few and far between, but but they do they do get tips um, yeah. on old cases, and and they uh, Lansing is is. Uh, a little more advantageous than um, the St. Ignace Post because the Lansing region now has a detective assigned strictly to cold cases. That's okay. all he does. In St. Ignace, I don't think that it's like that. I think it's, hey, I'll work on it when I get time. Okay. Uh, and and so it's not a full-time cold case position, but they do act on them. And yeah. so if, if a listener has a legitimate tip uh, my suggestion would be to contact the Michigan State Police St. Ignace Post. Yeah, because you never know. Somebody could know something or someone that has anything to share with it. And this is just getting even more information out there. And I really hope, just in memory of Mrs. Lacey, that we can get some word out there and get it solved. You know, And you were a huge part of it. And for the listener, it is a fantastic read. Rock. Rod, you did a wonderful job of research, of laying it out there, sharing the suspects, everything. It was an excellent read, um, and I I really cannot say enough about it. And now I need to get your other book and read that, too, <laughs> because uh, watching the special, sometimes you have so many more questions. And I know that the book can always go in more detail about that, and I think that's important sure. for, for them to know that. But we really anybody listening i'm sure wants to thank you for doing this and and helping hopefully get something re-triggered to help solve this cold case well i thank you for uh having me on your podcast and uh if if something breaks or if uh some new information is developed i'll be sure and uh get in touch with you i appreciate that and i'm sure anybody else was thank you so much Once again, I'd like to thank Rod for coming on here and sharing with us about Francis Lacey and everything that sadly occurred. Um, Again, the Michigan police did a phenomenal job of the investigation, especially at the time that it did, that there had been rain, 
that they found her where they did in the woods and recovered so much valuable information. Um, as he mentioned, if you can think of anything that could possibly help this case, you can always call it in and you could always reach out to Rod and he could put you in the direction of what you need to go for that. All the information, his website is in the show notes. Also, you can then link up into um, the website for the podcast, www.tollymackinawislandpodcast.com. And I have in there extra links for where you can go buy the book. Um, it is wonderful reading. It's definitely one so detailed that I feel with his knowledge definitely helped tie that together. So um, I do hope that this maybe gets some stuff rumbling to maybe see if we can't get some closure to this case because it's so well deserved so thank you again rod for coming on all right well that concludes this week's episode i look forward to talking to you next week about our favorite place mackinac island totally mackinac island is written produced and edited by me heather 